Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, today we're debating socialism versus capitalism. What is better for society? And we are starting right now. With our capitalist guest, JF's opening statement. JF, thanks for being here and the floor is all yours. It's a pleasure to be here. So talking about the difference between capitalism and socialism, I'd like today to introduce two main themes on which I think they contrast in a grave way, in a grave way that favors capitalism and that makes it such that I don't believe that socialism as conceived through the various theories and there are various preferences, there are full-blown communists, there are leftists who want to undermine the state, there are leftists who want to take control of the, the economy with the state, but in all its varieties, socialism suffers on these two fronts. And so I think it's important we talk about them because I think ultimately capitalism and the greatness that it produced in our world is not an original idea of capitalism. I think that capitalism merely reproduces in the economic sector features of a much wider natural array of phenomenons that help efficiency, that help improvement, and that help greatness. And socialism objects to these two points and combats them, in fact, which is why socialism is bound to fail. So the two points are coordination and selection. On the side of coordination, <clears throat> imagine we had a heavy object to move, and this heavy object would not be carryable by a single human. But with the, strength, with the strength of five men, the, the object could be easily lifted and displaced to a place where the object can be productive or where it can be at its right place for some reason. It would be absolutely inefficient for the five men who carry the object to all have their own plan about where to head and how to head there. And so that's a problem of coordination. And nature has found a natural mechanism to handle this. A leader will emerge, someone will decide, someone will have a stronger voice than the others, and he's just going to take over the conversation and impose the plan of where we are headed, when is it that you can rest, that you can lay the object down, maybe to take a little break, and of ultimately, what is the path we will take to bring the object to the right place. The reason leaders emerge is that the voices of the many are not good at coordinating a single plan of action, which is ultimately what matters for productivity. A single plan of action, not the disagreements of everyone, not the dreams of everyone, but a single voice to decide of an effective plan, uh, an effective plan which is systematically more productive than the many plans that can emerge in everyone's mind. Nature has had its mechanism to find this leader. Uh, it goes with the the status, social status, strength of the voice, uh, eventually between men, there will tend to be an agreement on who's the leader. And most of the time, it will not lead to a fight. So nature has already embedded in our genes uh, a form of submissiveness 
that allows ourselves to dedicate part of our body to control by others and for the purpose of productivity. And it was good for us that we did this. And that's why we evolved that way. If we didn't evolve in situations that require such collaboration and coordination, we would have evolved to uh, resist any attempt at controlling us, but we don't. We coordinate, we accept that we have a bus and we follow the orders because we know that ultimately the end product of what we do together is better directed by a single mind than it is by five. So the problem of socialism is that it it attributes an illegitimate role to the authority that naturally developed in circles of men. And these days, we could say women too. Uh, it combats this as an oppressive force that needs to be eliminated from society. And it wants to give a voice to everyone. But the reality is going forward with a plan that is complicated, is much better formulated by a single mind and executed by many different people. That's one front in which socialism loses to capitalism. Capitalism has no problem creating a hierarchy of command. We understand that it's an hierarchy to which we adhere uh, voluntarily. Uh, people are not forced to go work at McDonald's or Walmart. They can work there or they can work elsewhere. But ultimately, by destroying this effective hierarchy, socialism is depriving us of the efficiency of single mind planning. On the other front that I want to bring tonight, selection. I believe that capitalism is a better selector for the decisions that relate to the allocation of resources, because there is hidden within the structure of capitalism a little gem that redirects profits to the right person. And it's not that capitalism was formulated even consciously to do that. I believe that capitalism, just out of the, the rights of property that it offers, kind of accidentally leads the right people to have sums of money that are big enough to direct other human beings. And here's how it works. Someone who has a stack of money in their bank account in capitalism, and I'm not going to talk about the corruption of the state or the, the bad dealings that happen in capitalism. I know there are dishonest ways to get money in capitalism, and I object to them as much as the socialists do. But as far as getting money into your bank account honestly in capitalism, what it involves is you have to produce something. You have to make a product that people will give money for. And just because of that, ultimately capitalism concentrates the resources in the bank accounts of those people who are the best at serving others or who may have had a parent who was very good at serving others or a grandparent or a grand-grandparent, etc. No matter how the money gets into the bank account, it has served someone's purpose for a moment so much so that they were willing to pay for the service or for the good that they're buying. As such, capitalism is, is giving power to a bunch of people who are the perfect decision makers for society for society to be more bent towards serving more people, towards serving them more efficiently, towards producing some superior good or service that people want. Socialism doesn't have a mechanism to ensure such efficient distribution of resources. If you give a voice to all the workers, 
There is no proof that these workers are particularly good at management. There is no proof that these workers are brilliant or innovative in any way. Why would you trust workers at a job that they've never done and to which they've never even demonstrated any sort of talent for? Well, we have the answer from people like socialism done, le done left here. They take issue with power. They, they want to give the power back to the worker because they misinterpret the coordination signals that are legitimate, that come from nature and from the capitalist emulation of nature. They want to combat this because ultimately they are still teenagers in revolt against any sort of control over their actions but they are revolting against something that is ultimately in their own benefit, the performance and the improvement of efficiency that is allowed by properly organized hierarchical societies, which have led to the most productive, most beautiful, most desirable places to live in the entire history of humanity. Socialism done left here wants to abolish this because he is a teenager, and I'm sorry, it's not even a comment on his age, but the leftists are, they, they take issue with the parental authority and they extrapolate this to the entirety of society, when in fact, by listening to this authority, they could lead productive lives that could improve the worlds of tomorrow. Thank you very much, JF, for that opening statement. We will kick it over, but just want to say, folks, if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, we're a neutral channel, and hey, if you haven't hit that subscribe button yet, hit it now as we are pumped, as there are many upcoming debates that you don't want to miss. An example being next week, Destiny, JF's old buddy, will be here debating Marxism. You don't want to miss it. So with that, we will kick it over to Socialism Done Left. The floor is all yours for your opening as well. Hey, so I'm Aiden from the channel Socialism Done Left. Um, so why socialism? Uh, first, I, I want to outline what I think socialism means. And there's many types of socialism, and I understand JF might not know particularly which kind I'm talking about. So I'm going to cast a broad brush. Um, and so what I like to say is that socialism has four main characteristics. Um, when we talk about socialism, we talk about systems that have participatory democracy, worker ownership, democratic planning, and class abolition, or in short, political democracy, uh, workplace democracy, economic democracy, and the, the enormous shortening of inequalities. Um, when I think that you look at each of these four areas, it is enormously better to have systems that are further in this direction than less in this direction. Uh, I won't talk too much about the political democracy point, so that might be important to Gary Eppie's point about um, inequality. Uh, which I think we get to in the response in a moment. Um, but the three things that I think are really important for understanding why socialism would benefit most people and would therefore be better for society are looking at uh, worker ownership, at democratic planning, and at abolishing class. The, the last one I think is the easiest one to understand. Right now, enormously, the fruits of our society go to a relative few of society, um, both in terms of consumption, income, and wealth. People at the top get more than everyone else. This has costs for everyone else. It drives up the cost of uh, education and capital goods. It makes it harder for people who are poor to accumulate wealth. Um, in short, it makes it harder for people who are poor to live a good life. 
this is something that, you know, this is not just a Marxist argument or whatever. This is something that neoclassical economics, mainstream economics believes called marginal utility of income. People's happiness rises with income, but doesn't rise linearly. A dollar is worth more to a homeless person than it is to a millionaire. Um, in general, a more equal society, we would expect from economic theory and an enormous multitude of studies is going to be a more productive one, a happier one, lower crime, and, and I think this gets to some of the points that Gary Epi might talk to, a higher growth and a higher innovation one. One of the things that comes up time and time again in researching these issues is that when you benefit people who need help the most, when you see societies that have lower inequality, they have higher rates of growth, they have higher rates of innovation. And in the long run, the only thing that drives growth, and growth is the most important thing for giving people better lives, is innovation. Um, building societies where everyone can access education and have like a fulfilling, productive life is one in which society will be better in the long run. That's why we see countries like Sweden and most of the Nordic countries, which tend to have very strong social democratic nets. Um, and I'll touch on a second point um, for democratic mm -hmm. planning, tend to do very well on measures of innovation. Um, in short, I think that both from the perspective of just even in a, a no growth society. It would be better to have a more equal society. And in terms of a non-static society, of a growing society, it is better uh, to have a more equal society. Um, so in short, uh, abolishing class, trying to drive down wage inequality, uh, wealth inequality, and making everyone's life more equal, giving everyone uh, basic needs, what I like to talk about as universal basic income, universal basic needs. Um, these would make life better for everyone, both in the current moment and in the future, or virtually everyone. Um, the second main point is this idea of democratic planning. Right now, the market decides most of what is produced in society. Yes, there's some government planning. Yes, there's some government regulation, but the market is the strongest factor. And unfortunately, the market doesn't always align with human need. Uh, in, again, mainstream economics, there's this concept of a, um, of a negative or positive externality is a very simple one. So sometimes the market prices something higher or lower than it should be. So for example, the market doesn't care much about polluting carbon. The government has to make it care about polluting carbon. The market also doesn't care very much about housing people, except for the money that it can get from housing people. It doesn't care about any of the secondary benefits that people get from being homed, like say being able to be more productive and more innovative. Um, so the market undervalues housing relative to how much housing benefits society. The market does not put a high enough price on carbon relative to how much carbon hurts society. These are mainstream economic theories, and this is why you have to have government involvement. What I would like to contend is that most markets, uh, because of the fact that like wealth is so unequal in part, but also just as the structure of markets, markets systematically uh, misvalue uh, what goods truly should be valued at. So as a market socialist, I do not want to fully abolish markets, but I'm happy to say there should be enormous state involvement in these markets. So see it via subsidies, via regulation, and even via state ownership of some sectors, such as healthcare, which can help to decide what should be profitable, what should be subsidized, what should be regulated. And those should, in short, try to align every market with uh, private marginal utility, with like what is the market uh, profitable, with, to what is societally useful. Um, in short, this is the idea of internalization, that you want to remove all externalities and have what is privately profitable be identical to what is quote unquote socially profitable. Um, and again, I, this is not like a Marxist point to make. This is mainstream theory. And finally, I think this point uh, might be one that interacts most with Gary Epi's points about hierarchies, is this idea of worker ownership. Uh, this one, I think, is fairly simple. You know, we would not accept in society a system which failed to allow us to choose our political leaders. We would not accept that some guy um, who happens to inherit, you know, the firm or the country to just appoint the people in charge of us. That is monarchy. Um, we, in fact, had a whole revolution about this. I think that most people wouldn't accept it, and for good reason, because democracy works better in political systems and in the workplace. 
Um, when people can choose their own leaders, they tend to do better than systems where they can't choose their own leaders. There's a lot of research that co-determination, where workers are actively involved in the co-management of a firm, such as in Germany, improves the productivity of firms, not reduces it. Um, there's similar but more mixed evidence, and because they're a smaller sector, that um, proper worker cooperatives owned and operated by workers are more efficient than non-worker cooperatives. The simple reason why is because people who work have knowledge of what that work does. This is literally a point brought up by libertarian uh, Hayek, that there is local knowledge in production. When you get workers involved in um, the management of a firm, it enables them to have more of a stake and more of an ability to direct that firm to manage things productively. Um, so even, again, just from the perspective, a cold calculating perspective of not giving a shit about how much control workers have over the eight hours of their life that they have to trudge to work every day, even if you didn't give a shit about how much that matters to people's happiness, you would want a society where workers had more control over the means of production, more worker ownership, because it will build a better and stronger society. Um, so in short, I think that it's hard to want a society where there is so much inequality, where we don't try to solve market failures, and where we don't have worker ownership, and that's why we need socialism. You got it. Thank you very much. Socialism done left. Also, want to let you know, folks, our guests are linked in the description. So if you'd like to hear or read more from our guests, they're linked in the description box right now. And so you don't have to wait any longer. You can click below. And with that, we'll go into the open conversation portion. Thanks so, so much, gentlemen. The floor is all yours. Well, uh, Thomas O'Ward on the regular chat said something very interesting. He says, obviously, JF is laughing internally at the idea of worker ownership. Do the workers really own anything in a socialist system? And that would be a question I asked to Aidan. Uh, the current system for, for, for example, the federal government in the U.S. is a democratic one. Do you feel that there is a connection between the political elites of the U.S. and the people due to this democratic system? Do you feel that there's good control of the federal government by the people? Uh, there's not great democratic control. The U.S. is a particularly poor democracy. In better functioning democracies, there's a lot better control. Yeah. And so that's why one of my main points is this idea of participatory democracy. Um, what I would actually appeal to as a bigger point, there's this really good book that came out two years ago by a non-socialist, um, Daron Ajemoglu, spelled A-C-E Moglu. Um, and it's called The Narrow Corridor. One of his big theories is that the most successful states have been those that grew out the power of the state and grew out the power of society, basically more democratic power at the same time. The best example that he points to is Sweden um, during the social democratic era, because it enormously grew out the power of the state, the social welfare, and it also grew out the power of unions and political parties and other abilities to check the state. So my suggestion is first, stronger, better democracy to better control the system, but also extra legal, like extra um, extra electoral uh, methods to check the state should also be strengthened. Stronger unions, stronger, stronger local political organizations, absolutely. Now, would you acknowledge that your theory and your desire there is reliant on the people being wise and wanting to do good. What happens in a democracy where the vast majority of the people do not care about hurting minorities or uh, about uh, impeding on people's rights? The same thing that happens in markets where people don't give a shit about that. People buy child labor products every single day. People utterly fail to destroy segregated houses back in the era of Jim Crow. 
right? It, it, the idea that only democracy has this problem where bigoted people can hurt other people is absurd. Um, when we look at the evidence, democracy systematically does better on these issues. Um, I, I was going to point to way in the beginning, um, it, in fact, the first paper, by, I think by, by Asia Moglu in, in 2002, you were talking about like what allowed us to historically get out of sort of this like long, long um, march of, of poverty. And one of the things that he demonstrated is that the returns to growth in Western Europe from the unique trade with like the Atlantic, um, you know, the whole discovery of these new continents were entirely linked to how democratic those countries were and the strength of those countries' institutions. There are extremely strong links between democracy and growth. Well, uh, what I, where I take issue is that, yes, there can be bad things done in the capitalist system, but there is a way you can disengage from it. In the capitalist system, if you ultimately you don't buy a product, whatever the thing being done for this, the production of this product will not be done. And in that way, capitalism gives more power to the people, in my view, than democracy. Uh, the problem of democracy being that not only does it listen to the voice of everyone, and they are not necessarily competent at making managerial and societal decisions, but on top of it, it gives them the power of the state which no corporation has, it gives them the power of writing the law. And ultimately, it puts them much closer to the violations of individual rights that a company couldn't possibly do if, it, if we're in a somewhat legal, lawful society. As long as a company cannot force me to do something, uh, I, it's ultimately my choice that determines the evolution of society. But when the power is given to the mob by democracy and when the, the end of the state is given to individuals, uh, then you have a hold on me, which corporations do not have. Uh, sure. So I do agree that there is some risk of democracy as like a sort of majoritarian system overriding people's will. That's part of the reason why I support some markets. And that's also part of why I talk so much about extra um, extra electoral checks on democracy, um, because you need those to try and hold democracy back. But I think that it's hard. So on its own, there is a slightly higher risk of being forced to do something by democracy, by like the, the government, than, you know, like a pure, well-functioning market, perhaps. Let's just grant that. Um, the problem with that is that you would also have to lose all of the benefits of having greater state control, for example, uh, not just state control, but like democratic control, like being able to solve market failures and try to like internalize all externalities by trying to resolve this enormous inequality that we see. One of the biggest problems with saying that there is choice in the market is that people don't have equal voices. The rich, you know, Jeff Bezos has like 180 billion times more votes than, than some people in the world. Um, it's hard to call that a functioning democracy. Moreover, the idea that people aren't coerced by markets, the whole point that what you were talking about is that it selects people. It literally says, you aren't good enough. You don't get any money. You're not a worker. You don't get any money. This is coercion. So the idea that like you're totally free from coercion in a market system when you need to like work to eat, work to get the good things in life is just absurd. There's coercion in every system. Well, I want to get back to this rewarding the few because I really love this. It's a feature of capitalism that I would in fact make bigger and better. Uh, I, I would like this to increase in the future. I would like more people to be kicked out. But uh, I, I want to focus on what we agree on, which I think is amazing. You seem to attribute some value to the market. Can you take us through why is it that market is valuable and why is it that it's not? I, so I think the reason I outlined is that 
sometimes the market allows a non-majoritarian access to like power and choices, the same way that non-majoritarian institutions in democracy can allow you access to those choices. For example, a well-functioning judiciary should be anti-majoritarian. But what you just said was like, you, you want to destroy all of the things that like try to reduce inequality. So to me, it doesn't sound like you want the market to function like a good democracy where people have good choices. You actually want wealth to be even more concentrated for the average person to have less choice over markets. It doesn't sound like you actually care much about like trying to reduce coercion. Well, the thing is, uh, I don't interpret it as coercion if you feel forced to work at McDonald's to survive. Because ultimately, I don't think you're entitled to a job at McDonald's. So here, the word coercion that you use, perhaps it's worth uh, exploring in more detail. Uh, it's not coercion to tell someone, I don't want to employ you. Okay, then it's not coercion for the state to tell you something to do. If we're just going to argue semantics, then I don't care. I'll just define the state as not being I coercive. Mean, but in fact, it is requiring you to work. What The market requires you to work. In fact, the government is requiring you to do something. There is, like, behind that, a threat that you won't get things that you want, whether it be surviving or, like, higher fruits of life. Yeah, but if you want these things, then you are faced with the market. You're faced with the fact that there are people willing to employ you and there are people not willing. Uh, coercion, to me is the idea that you should be my boss, that you have to hire me. That's coercion. And it's not a semantic point. It's a very important philosophical point. It's the difference between entitlement and on which sense do we interpret the entitlement. You are say, By saying I'm entitled to a job at McDonald's with certain conditions, you are essentially saying I'm entitled to other people putting bricks together and forming a McDonald's and putting together all this chain of production of the Big Mac. And I'm entitled to all of this system working for me, the worker who wants to work at a fast food. So when we're talking about non-workers, particularly we're trying to talk about like children, disabled people, elderly, and so on, people who can't access the labor market, they don't have the ability to make income. Like it's just not possible. The biggest driver of poverty in any given country is how much income we give to those people. So like the market can't solve those people ever, unless you want to like, I don't know, hook up children to like go drive robots or something. Um, it, it just that can't is solve. False. I disagree with this. Uh, the traditional society has solved this, which is to have a kind of family uh, overarch uh, patriarch who was able to make so much money, in fact, that he could support an handicapped child or that there, there was enough communal uh, solidarity that some aunt or some uncle or some sister was there to care yeah, but then for those people don't person. have children, right? And I think that what you just said is very ableist because <laughs> there's an handicapped person on Twitter uh, he, he's the, uh, I, I don't even remember, Jeff Berwick or something like this. He's doing amazing work. You can survive in this world on the free market while having handicaps. Uh, I, I find it pretty ableist for a socialist, honestly, to think that handicapped people must be uh, supported by the state. I think they, they sure. can What do, do you think well that should happen? Own. Sure, I just want to know, what should happen to a paraplegic orphan? So actually, this is a good example. So my great-grandfather got hit by a car when he was seven, and his leg was totally destroyed. It lost the gangrene, okay? He didn't finish uh, middle school, okay? What should have happened to him in your system? Well, I would wish that the community was left with enough money in their pocket to fund a church, and that this church could operate various forms of charity that would care for this person. So you're suggesting that private charity will resolve the problem of poverty, which is it has never solved ever in history. Private charity has been poverty. the same for so, 100 sorry, years. Did you say someone who was poor or someone who was 
paraplegic I, because paraplegic is not poverty. I, sure. So I, the, the general idea here is that we don't want people to like struggle to access their basic needs because that prevents them from being productive members of society. Maybe I should actually focus on this more rather than trying to defend um, this idea. Why do you think that not everyone should have access to like education, for example? Do you want everyone to have access to high school education? No. Okay. I would want so the why least, not? Uh, why do you think that would make society people. more productive? Uh, well, I'm not thinking about in terms of society being productive. I'm thinking in terms of coercion and illegality. So ultimately, when you state someone is entitled to a high school education, what you're really saying is, I'm entitled to steal money from someone, to pay a teacher, to propagandize this particular child, because I think it's better for society for some reason. That's theft to me. And so it's coercion. Well, if you're sure, saying like, you're entitled to anything, you're entitled to the services of the janitor of the school, of the teacher of the school, and I'm against coercion. That's that's why. Sure. So like, I come at this from a more utilitarian view. I think some theft can be justified. And the simple reason is that some theft makes everyone better off. Modern society would not be possible without states guiding markets. I can't, uh, there, there's actually a book that partially touches on this, like History of American Law. We had to create the modern legal system and the, and the modern market structure. They didn't just spring out of nowhere. They are like guided by well-functioning governments. Um, in fact, if anything, the, the most well-functioning societies in terms of growth are like the East Asian um, miracles, which are heavily government guided. The government has an enormously heavy role there in guiding what, pro what companies do, like information sharing, technology sharing, like R&D. Um, I guess basically to me, it just sounds like you don't want the, I have a view of freedom, which is positive. I am willing to say, I'm going to take away, you know, 10% of your freedom. I'm going to take away 20% of your income, right? That is reducing your freedom, but I'm going to distribute it to society and it's going to make everyone's lives, you know, 20, 30, 40% better off. Do you just have such an opposition to coercion that you won't take that? You'd prefer that everyone be worse off? Absolutely. Because I think that hidden there is the cost of coercion which you don't take into account. Uh, by the way, traditional societies, yes, let's say 100 years or 200 years ago, America, did it need a government to be that, that successful? I wouldn't even deny that we needed some sort of government. I'm a minarchist, so I don't object to all forms of government, absolutely. But the fact is, what the government did in America that lead to the greatness of this nation was to protect the free decisions of people, was to protect them to some extent against crime, to some extent against local corruption. Not perfectly, of course, but it did a little bit of allowing the free market and capitalism to develop. What you're suggest suggesting with positive liberty is going much further than what has established the greatness of societies as we know them. You are suggesting to parasite off of the surpluses of society for a social engineering project that you think is good for people. And that is very dangerous. Uh, one of the reasons it's dangerous is you, you just justified theft. And there is no moral limit as to why someone who wouldn't want, someone sure who would is. want two times more theft than you might uh, be wrong, right or wrong. By your standard, it's a, it's a question of relative evaluation. Am I right if I want to steal two times more than you? And what if someone else shows and he wants to steal four times more than me? There's no end to it. It's a slippery slope and we are in that slippery slope. So, uh, sorry, what, what were you saying? You wanted to speak? Uh, sorry, what I was trying to say is the answer to when it's justified is when it benefits society as a whole. 
Like that's quite sim- the simple argument. Um, if someone would take so much money and like, I don't know, throw it on a, on a pile and burn it, that would probably not be very useful or justified. The way that we try to resolve this in sort of like a rule utilitarian sense is we say, hey, if like everyone in society followed this rule or like, you know, almost everyone in society followed this rule, would it make things better or worse off? So if we take, you know, 5% of your income and we spend it on education and the next generation of children earn, tw- you know, two, three times higher income, does that benefit you? Yeah pretty directly it does. So even from an egoistical perspective, it benefits you unless you take a deontic opposition to coercion, um, which I just don't think is tenable. It, it like it, it, the whole a... history of human civilization is cooperation with some implied force behind it. Social norms as are part of those coercions. I do have a deontological opposition to it, but I would I would also raise a utilitarian question. Would America have developed the way it did? Would it have the innovation that it did with the internet or whatever, medicine, everything essentially that we know of the modern world that that has emerged from America? Could this have happened under a redistributionist system? Unfortunately, I don't think it I, I can actually directly answer that because there's a whole book on this by Mariana Matsukudo called The Entrepreneurial State, which describes in detail, for example, how the internet was created by the U.S. state. So quite literally, yes. Well, the, the internet was created by researchers and universities. Some of it was funded by- and Publicly funded public. universities and the DOD. <laughs> But there's no evidence that the free market wouldn't uh, wouldn't have been necessary and has not been necessary for this. The reason the internet developed ultimately is that there were already lines of communications before the internet. There were BBSs, there were private companies laying down these wires across America. So ultimately, internet may have been thought of in terms of its digital structure by a university researcher. But other than this, it developed into a society that was heavily uh, invested in capitalism and private ownerships of these networks. So I, I guess the problem that I'm having here is when we look at the modern examples of economic miracles, it's the East Asian countries, which follow something which is called like the developmental state. Um, which is why Matsukudo titled her book, The Entrepreneurial State. It is precisely the ability of the state in those countries to coordinate production. One of the big things they did is technology sharing. When one of the companies got new tech, they would share it with the other ones. When one of them figured out a new way to like organize their factory lines, they share it with the other ones. This sort of like a cooperative development model was enormously influential in their very rapid growth. Um, like South Korea approached European levels of GDP in just like 40 years. And a huge part of that was this level of cooperation. Um, I think this idea that like only capitalism can deliver innovation is absurd when, if anything, there are theoretical reasons to believe that capitalism underinvests in research and development, underinvests in human capital. You just said that you wouldn't support high schools for everyone, and neither would the market. The, the, it's a very simple reason. It's not worth it unless you can make the money back to pay for high school education. Uh, and you know, the government paying for high school education for an individual is worth it because they benefit from everything that benefits from society. But a company only benefits from that which benefits them. The only way they it would be worth it to a company to like raise someone from cradle to like adulthood is if they had indentured slavery or indentured servitude. (laughs) Yes, you're right. And so we shouldn't uh, invest where the private sector has properly identified that these investments are not worth it on the long run. Uh, I think that you are adopting a very naive view of the future and of where we're headed. When you talk about the Asian nations and how they're growing, I think you're letting yourself be propagandized by a view of growth that is unreal, unsustainable, fictitious, and that ultimately will uh, result in an unsustainable system. 
Uh, it's very easy if you're the government and you're taking money from the pockets of people to create growth. And if on top of it, you can print They've been your creating own growth money. for 50 years. South Korea's yeah. GDP has like octupled or something. Like I, yeah. if, if, if it's a mirage of growth that goes on for 50 years, why would we think that it would stop? Like, I guess what I would ask is like, why do you think that these things are fictitious? What evidence leads you to support your worldview other than like uh, your perception that it's coercive and it's false? Well, here's another uh, evidence, which I, a, a principle which I've laid out in my opening statements. And this opens up on your first uh, opposition to my points. The fruits of society go to a few. This has cost for everyone else, you say. We must improve the marginal utility of everyone. It leads to happier society. What you described there is to undermine the selective system of capitalism. The selective system of capitalism is the reason why we don't end up getting drained by infinite needs and infinite demand. One of the problems of these uh, systems, whether it's money printing or socialism done in any way or communism done in any way, is that they combat the very resource allocation system, the system of selection that improves things with time. And it transforms, transforms them into an exploitable, drainable system. If you give everyone what they need, they will make babies. These babies will be more numerous in the next generation than in the current. And eventually you're going to get even more people with even more needs. There is no end to this. If you are surfing on an ever-increasing technological background or a success story of economy like America is, you may be able to ride this exploitable system for maybe 100 years, maybe 500 years. But there is a limit always. Physics tell us that, the, the second principles of thermodynamics, that any system that drains energy will end up reaching its ceiling. And the fact that entropy exists your... is not a strong argument against like the idea that technology is the key driver of growth. This, for reference, um, if you guys want to look it up, it's called the solo growth model. It's like the it's the backbone behind most growth models nowadays. We think tech drives growth say... because we can prove it. Well, you're fighting a strawman at this point because I didn't say that technology is not a driver of growth. It's My the driver. Is... Innovation and productivity are the drivers. Yeah. I, I don't even contest this. My problem is you are creating exploitable system. You are guaranteeing a safety net to everyone. They will end up making babies and you'll have more needs in the next generation. With capitalism, This just doesn't seem to be true though, right? Like Hungary is literally spending, I think now like 10% of its GDP on family planning programs and they aren't just like churning out babies. I think that, I guess it feels to me a, bit, a little bit like we're dodging the main point here, right? Which is that I'm trying to say spending on children, spending on individuals will increase their productivity. And you're saying, well, there are also some other effects like, oh, maybe they'll have slightly more babies. Okay. But you aren't really addressing the fact that like enormously investing in people, say, getting through high school, college, even investing in R&D, which like the state can force people to do, will benefit everyone in the short and long run. Um, I, 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 like, how do you solve this in a market system? Or are you just conceding there is lower growth in your system? but you contend it's like real growth somehow. I will not concede this since the historical demonstration is right in front of us. The market has been fueling innovation, growth, and ultimately what current communists are riding on, which is an extremely productive society. 
which was not discovered by communists. If it was discovered by communists, we would we would have a US a very healthy and innovative USSR right now. So the demonstration by history is that capitalism is fit to ensure growth. And in fact, that it's so fit at that that it eventually gets exploited by statists who, who gain the benefits by finding various indirect ways to steal that wealth, whether it's taxation or money printing. Uh, yeah, my, my problem remains the same. You don't have a selection system. So you're talking about good growth and good innovation and good investments. This all assumes that your dictatorial entity, whether it's a single dictator or a mob or a democracy, it assumes that they have the right decision making to decide what is innovative and where to invest. And the problem is uh, investment in the domain of innovation, it works until it doesn't. Uh, we are already, in my view, entering the moment of a scientific era where essentially we're getting drained money by scientists who are making promises, but who will not offer growth that is as good as their ancestors did. See, science, a hundred years ago, it was making major steps, but we're approaching the point where we're just going to be throwing money at scientists who will be recording the farts of frogs and quantifying them in some special way. It's not going to get more productive, and science will soon be more of a cost than an opportunity for growth. And that, on top of certainly... it, you're going to get bureaucratic agents from the state making the decision about what's the right science to fund. It's not going to work long term. So the, the thing that's so funny to me is that when I'm like reading like other writers about this, they're literally talking about a third industrial or fourth industrial, depending on how you want to count it, revolution due to solar getting so fucking cheap, mainly, this is oddly enough, due to Obama. <laughs> Obama gave enormous stimuluses to com companies. You might remember Solyndra, which went bankrupt. It was a bad example. And then part of the enormous stimulus also went to a whole bunch of countries, which, uh, companies, which worked out really, really, really well. The cost of solar went down like 10 times in 10 years, something along those lines. People are literally talking about like the electrification of the entire third world due to stuff like this. Just, do you, you have know, mRNA do you vaccines. Have solar panels? Do you work on solar panels right now? I, I do not personally work on solar panels. No, no. no I, I mean, is your stream right now operating from solar energy? I think uh, it's a mixture of that and a little bit of coal, uh, not coal, gas, but yeah. A little bit of coal, like 99%? I I feel like this is the worst argument. <laughs> like, even if no, it were true I, that it was 100% no, coal powered, my personal is, hypocrisy if, does if not make that argument is false. So impressive. If solar is so impressive... I would expect okay. you to be working on solar systems and to be getting that free energy or low cost energy. Why I, don't I, you have solar panels right behind you? Okay. Okay. So for one, it's at the night. So it would be impossible for me to be getting solar energy at the current ah, moment. It, I, here's one that's great why, defect that's actually with the why. solar. Ah. That's actually why one of the other really good fields for state investment in decarbonification to avoid the looming crisis of climate change is nuclear power. Uh, one of the one of the biggest success stories of decarbonification is France. Um, during the years like 1960 to 1980, I believe, during like the, the dying years of Keynesianism, before we got back to neoliberalism and moving the direction that you're talking about, they built so much nuclear power that they reduced carbon output 4.5% per year. The target that we've got to reach, according to the IPCC, is around minus 5% per year. 
Like we can do it. The state did it in France. The state was doing it in South Korea. The state was doing it in Japan. Um, nuclear is one of those things that the capitalists can't invest well in because it's so expensive and it takes so long to re reap returns. Um, it, it's one of those examples where state investment is just unambiguously better. Yeah. No, uh, it's a perfect compliment for, for solar. Yeah. First, there are plenty of companies that build nuclear weapons in the U.S. and they're, well, they're perfectly weapons, capable. We're talking about plants. No, no, but yeah, let me explain to you why they don't build plants. It's because the state will not allow a constant demand, and they will self-appropriate through monopoly with regulations around this industry in such a way that it's impossible for a company to invest the amounts of research needed for this without the guarantee that they will be ever able to sell this energy. There would, it would not be a problem for private companies to develop nuclear power and to produce it. Right now, the problem is it's not really uh, efficient. It's, uh, it costs a lot per kilowatts to operate a nuclear plant, and it's still not viable. And on top of it, you get that's the regulations that essentially thing. render it impossible. So one of the things that's interesting is that, that the, the idea that nuclear is really expensive is true, but only in the United States. One of the things that's really interesting is that in the United States, nuclear power it was mostly like public-private partnerships where individual nuclear power plants would have to be designed for an individual site, like worked with the local government and planned out. So there's a little bit of regulation involved, but it's also a little bit of one company can only raise enough money for one plant. The French and the South Koreans didn't have this problem because they had state-owned utilities, and the French built like 100 nuclear power plants, and the Koreans built like, I want to say like 25. And so they had standardized designs, they had teams that worked on it for decades, and they just plopped them, plopped them, plopped them, plopped them. It's another example of how like a state investment can actually improve productivity over having a company that is too small to do so. Um, That's I, I, just another way to, to do test. When the state says, okay, I'm going to make the regulation system so hard for you that you won't ever dare build one, and then I'm going to build my own. That's a way the state monopolizes certain markets, and I find it sad. Personally, I would love to see more nuclear plants, but unfortunately, yes, it's not developing in the U.S., partly because uh, there's some hate against this type of energy, and ultimately the companies cannot be involved in the risk that it means to be interacting with uncertain and changing governmental regulations. This is certainly possible. Like one of the, uh, there is literally a study on this, um, at, on like the cost of nuclear um, to production. And the United States, it like rapidly goes from like one thousand, um, oh, what is it? Well, like one thousand per terawatt to like nine thousand per terawatt. In France and Korea, it stays around like two thousand per terawatt. It never goes that. It never goes up. Um, I guess more generally, like to, to get off on the topic of specifically nuclear and specifically solar, the argument that you're trying to raise is like, hey, maybe science will eventually be bad and like a bad investment. Sure, it could be. And then maybe we shouldn't invest into it. Okay. But like right now, it seems like we're seeing enormous returns to science. And the other thing I was going to mention, there's solar, but there's also mRNA vaccines, um, literally funded in part by, by like NIH grants. Um, those probably will revolutionize medicine. They might solve HIV AIDS. Like I, we're living in an era of like incredible biological and like physical, technological breakthroughs. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I can't believe that you are making your flagship of your ideology, the realization of mRNA vaccines. Uh, but okay, I can take it. Uh, I, I don't want the mRNA vaccine. I'm not interested in this progress. I'm not interested in a molecule that enters my cell. Uh, but that's me. Uh, if people want RNA vaccines, they should take it. I'm fine with it. Let's move to your second point, democratic planning. Uh, 
Sure. Market is deciding. Unfortunately, it doesn't always align with human needs. Why are human needs your unit of societal control? Well, sure. So like, I guess to appeal to the debate topic a little bit, it's like what's best for society, but also more generally, um, systems that work best tend to be those that like make most people better off and more able to like live. I, I, I'm kind of appealing constantly to productivity because to me it's the sort of thing that, hey, even if you don't agree with the system in the current status quo, it's going to make your life a hell of a lot better 20, 30, 40 years down the line. Higher innovation, higher productivity is really, really worth it to you. Um, and if the market won't support that because it's not going to give people a middle school or high school education, which apparently is your position, then that's bad. That's real bad. <clears throat> Do you realize that humans in their natural state, if you fulfill their need too much, there will not be that extra motivation? Do you realize there, there is such a thing as fulfilling human needs too much for their own mental and physical well, uh, health? Uh, so the only study that I've seen that relates directly to this um, is... Um, it, it relates to the marginal utility of income with respect to happiness. Um, and so it found that there's a log linear relationship that each time you double your income, you get linearly more happy. So there is a point at which you do get diminishing returns, but I, I don't think that there's a point that we know of anyway, at which too many resources is going to like harm people as far as we know. Um, Are you familiar, for example, with the differential of diagnosis of, de of depression in Africa with respect to, and in poor countries in general, with respect to Western civilization? I, no, I'm not familiar with the diagnosis of depression in Africa. But it turns out that depression is a rich person's uh, health problem, if you will, that essentially you don't fall into depression on probabilistic ground, uh, you, you can, but you, you will much less fall into depression if you are in a country where you are very close to your survival, where you are at the limit of poverty or below it. And in fact, these people do not suffer from depression as much as the wealthy people of, uh, of the rich parts of the town in Western civilization. So I have no idea whether this is true. I, I can't speak to it. Something that I think is an interesting related problem is that we solved infectious disease and we solved most acute conditions like accidents and other killings that people stopped dying of them and they started dying of heart disease and cancer. So we were so successful as a society that we increased the rate of cancer and we increased the rate of heart disease. This doesn't mean that more people are dying of heart disease. It's just that they aren't dying of other things. I think I, I don't know whether it's true that people who are very poor are not depressed, but to me, if the best argument for capitalism is that people will be so poor that they won't be depressed, that seems like a very poor system. I would rather take like a doubling of depression if most people can live in like wondrous prosperity. <laughs> I think you're underestimating the importance of this argument because I think what it demonstrates ultimately is that we are creatures that have evolved for a struggle and the modern world and, and worse, perhaps the world that you want to make society uh, become is a world that doesn't satisfy this need for competition, this need for struggle. And it may be the case that in the way we have evolved, we, are, we just need that kind of stimulus. We need to be thrown down the cliff so we can attempt to fly and we need to feel that perhaps I will die feeling to be innovative in a meaningful way. That's Perhaps it's true. the way humans connect with planet Earth. 
but but the, the idea that you literally need to be like on death's door to be like innovative is just not true. There's literally, I think Malthy mentions this to you in his conversation, which I skipped through. Um, he mentioned a very famous study called Food Stamp Entrepreneurs, which showed that when people got food stamps, they were more likely to become entrepreneurs. There are like dozens of other similar studies. I mentioned in my intro that um, like social democratic countries are better at building startups. Um, there's evidence that like generally more equal societies um, have more startups. It, it seems to be that when the, the main limiter to people forming businesses and getting their ideas out there is not that they're like just too bored and lazy, it's that they don't have the means to get access to it. That's why Where it matters so much start- how you give poor people these access. Like, it's a very naive look again. Yeah. Of course, if you inject money into a system, people will go into various paths, including entrepreneurship. It doesn't mean that they were successful. The problem is if you give free money to people, of course, they're going to start investing it in some kind of lemonade stand. The question is long-term, did it make sense? Did you waste that money or did you profit from it? The answer is most of these generous donations to people that starts them on an entrepreneurial path is a wrong investment. It is an investment that ends up wasting more than it produces. Sure. So it's really hard to like prove the quality of investments. Um, so I, I guess there's two things here. One, a lot of people in my chat are like spamming me these studies about rates of depression and lower income. I, I don't, I, again, I don't know what the truth is, but like I, studies I have seen generally find higher happiness with higher income. So I'm, I don't tend to think this would be true, but like I, directly addressing this point, um, there is only, as far as I'm aware, one study which looks at like the efficacy of like state R&D investments versus private R&D investments, and it's in pharmaceuticals, actually. Um, and I can send you the study if you'd like to read it. Um, it found that uh, state investments into new pharmaceuticals, um, particularly via like public research universities, were like two times more likely to get um, what the FDA calls priority review, drugs which have a high likelihood of improving people's quality of life. And there's other studies that replicate this finding. Um, it's hard to like prove government R&D is better or worse. And even if it's just the same as like private market R&D, the fact that the market under invests suggests a really big role for the state here, um, that the state should be over investing in R&D relative to the market because the market won't be as productive as it would be if the state forced them to invest. State regulators choosing state-funded projects at state-funded universities. I will dismiss this point as the monopoly acting as it always does. Uh, Number three, your last points I wanted to cover, worker ownership. Worker co-ops are more effective. It gets the employee involved in the decision of choosing their own leader and it gives them a sense as to what they they, they produce and a better knowledge about the product. Is there anything in the current system that I could do, that I could change so that it's easier to get worker co-ops operating wherever they are needed and wanted uh, without converting to communism? Uh, Sure, like some of the things that seem to improve worker co-op formation are like having more unions so that people have experience working together, moving towards co-determination style systems. So again, workers have experience operating with like management. Um, Generally, it would be like more egalitarian systems of management, what's called like um, 
I'm forgetting the name for it. I want to say it's called participatory management, where like even outside of code determination, you know, like the shop manager is talking with people on the floor, um, simple things like that. If you want to talk finances, it would be like maybe banks, which are more willing to lend to cooperatives. Banks hate lending to worker co-ops because they don't have like a single point person. Um, they're less trustworthy than like this individual rich person. It's harder for them to pull up, put up collateral. Um, so kind of cultural and financial issues are the big ones. Yeah, one of the problem, banks don't want to lend to a worker co-op because the worker co-op, there's no guarantee that it will be profitable in a year from but, now and that it won't yeah, be overtaken by... What? There's no guarantee for private businesses. If, in fact, right. at um, least, by the metric of... At least businesses you have the survive, guarantee of the... Survive longer. Of, yeah, but at least you have the guarantee of the owner and his wealth. If he has money, if he has assets... There's a way you can seize these assets if you cannot pay his loan back. So the idea is that um, an individual capitalist right now may be more able to do that in part because wealth is so unequally distributed. In a more equally distributed society, you could get that collateral from multiple people. So even if we wanted to do that, that'd be one solution. But speaking to the second issue again, we probably actually want overinvestment in these new firms. It is better to have a more competitive market, better to have more companies trying to innovate, because again, that is the main driver of long-term productivity. I would rather have, you know, a dozen, not a dozen, you know, two times as many failed businesses if it means that we get even more productive firms in the end. Well, it seems that you have an idea for an hedge fund. So you should start a hedge fund in which people give money and you will be giving money to these uh, innovative young companies. And if it's true that it leads to more productivity, then you guys will be the richest uh, hedge funds around. The problem with this is that a hedge fund only makes benefits from that which they can make money on, from that which they own. So a hedge fund only owns, you know, I don't know, let's say 1% of the economy. They're like BlackRock. They own like 5% of the economy. Even then, they don't get benefits to innovations that benefit the other 95% of the economy. The state, if you want to call them the big monopoly, the big firm, they can get benefits to literally everyone. That's why it can be useful for the state to fund projects which fail because then those failures can benefit other firms um, because they benefit from individuals doing better even if they don't directly employ those individuals. It, it's the it's the same idea that like the state doesn't need to directly employ someone for it to be worth it for the state to like give people high school education, but it's only worth it for a firm to give you like a, a middle school, high school level education if they're going to get a personal benefit out of that. It's the classic externality problem. All right. Well, it seems that you are guided by common good considerations, and these uh, considerations have never built a very good society. In fact, commenting back on something I didn't mention from your opposition, you know, why is Sweden, Sweden has a correlation, shows a correlation between uh, big state and, and uh, a relative level of equality and innovation. Uh, I think that you have the causality sense wrong here. I think that equal societies arise in places where there is a surplus of already innovative and already productive companies. Uh, I think that shows the evolution of both Sweden and many countries of Europe and America. Essentially, it's a grift that has happened where educational systems have grifted upon already su su uh, successful societies in a way that leads people to believe that education caused these productivity increase when in fact it was already the game was already set before the educational the modern educational system of America popped into existence. 
so I guess that we can be added toward a concluding statement. I don't know for you, but as far as I'm concerned, I would say I'm not satisfied that these uh, armchair managers like Aiden, who doesn't seem to have been implementing in reality his plan. He just sees the beauty of the state and wants to recruit it for his view of the common good. Uh, there's no reason why his project about worker co-ops and democratic decision-making, if it was efficient, there's no reason why you wouldn't be able to implement it in our societies. You may be facing some cultural backlash, as he calls it, or banks not wanting to give loans, but this has never stopped the big innovators of this world, the big innovators of this world, the people who have invented modems and the people who have invented CPUs. They did it in their garage, and the more they were showing that they were successful, the more they were attract attracting funds toward them. And so if the socialist ideas of Aden are working so good, I hope that we can find a little town in America where they can demonstrate the viability of it, and then eventually it can grow, and the more people are willing to give their money to these young, unworking um little projects and entrepreneur dreams, uh, the more it will be successful. But I don't think it is successful. And I think that's the reason we don't see much worker co-ops. Uh, it's just that competitively, they cannot generate a good product that is as good as what a private corporation in a capitalist system can do. Gosh, any concluding thoughts from you, socialism done left? Sure. Um, so I think that a lot of the fundamental issues in this debate were kind of danced around. Um, so I think that, that there was no convincing solution to like, how should markets solve externalities? No convincing solution to like, oh, markets underinvest in research and development. No convincing to answers to like, why the development states have grown so quickly, other than to say it's fake. Um, there have been no arguments other than, I, I think the only argument about like more equal societies being higher growth was that, um, oh, it's correlation, not causation. We can literally look either at one at like welfare studies, like you add the welfare policy, people get more productive, um, which obviously is causal. Um, or two, you can look at, um, there's a neat meta study about this that correlates um, high quality studies, uh, like higher levels of inequality to lower levels of growth. Um, I, in short, I think that a lot of the fundamental issues we didn't actually get into the meat of, but we just kind of like moved on to the next issue. Um, so I, I guess the concluding thoughts that I would say is that obviously the system I'm advocating for can't be done as an individual firm. Um, I've tried to say again and again that one individual firm can't get the benefits of everything you would need to do to build a productive society. You would literally need a firm like, I don't know, Amazon times 10. Maybe they can do it. They start building company towns. They start educating company children from like cradle to grave. They start giving them company healthcare cradle to grave. Yeah, maybe then you could get it because you've got indentured servitudes. You've got another state de facto, but you can't do that um, when you're an individual firm. An uh, individual firm can't capture all those benefits, which is why the market doesn't do so. It's why the market was funding people to go through high school until the state stepped in to do it. Um, the state has resolved a lot of these problems. I want to see the state become more democratic, both in directly better democratic elections and externally having more control via uh, non-electoral control like unions and political parties. Um, 
That's sort of the participatory democracy point. The second point that I want to argue for is worker democracy. When we look at evidence on worker democracy, they're two times more likely to survive five years than are con conventional firms. This idea that worker cooperatives are just like bumbling around with these idiotic workers who don't understand because they're at the bottom of the hierarchy. They're at the real lobsters of the world, right? Um, it's just not true, right? The reality of this is that worker cooperatives are generally as good or slightly better than conventional firms. Um, so the main reasons they don't succeed are cultural uh, failures, basically. A lot of places don't have the ability to form cooperatives because people don't know how to. Um, they don't have the incentive to do so or they don't have the capital to do so because they don't have it individually and banks won't lend to them. Um, this is why we, I suppose, as like uh, uh, stepping stones, I talked about increasing rates of unionization and co-determination. Um, so like sectoral bargaining as in France and co-determination as in Germany would be good first steps. Um, and then third point was this idea of democratic control of like the economy. Again, it's this idea that um, the market, uh, as I was trying to mention again and again, underinvests in key areas. It doesn't ensure that everyone has housing, but housing makes everyone better off. It reduces the likelihood that you'll become an addict, reduces the likelihood that you will um, commit a crime against other people. It literally benefits other people if you are housed. Um, and the market does not provide sufficiently cheap houses for people to do so. The state can step in and solve that. Um, an example for this would be housing first in Finland, which is de facto eliminate homelessness. And it's benefited Finland as a whole. Um, in short, I think that it's very hard to uh, come at this from like a pure libertarian anti-coercion standpoint and not have any good solutions to like market externalities and then conclude that your society will do even better. Um, particularly when I believe there was a quote that um, in ancient times, um, you know, people were happier that like people in poor countries um, who are themselves poor have lower rates of depression. Like the society I want to see is not one where we have to be so poor that we don't understand how like unhappy we are. I want to like live in a society where everyone can be so prosperous that you too can afford a therapist to make you feel fine. Um, and then finally, I said, um, uh, the fourth point was uh, this idea of class abolition. In short, a more equal society, it, debt tends to be a better one, higher in terms of growth, as I mentioned, um, and more able to build worker cooperatives and happier and lower crime. Um, in short, like it, there, there's a reason that these structures have produced happier and higher productivity societies in other countries. We should absolutely adopt them in the United States. We are going three to short comments. Can I give three short comments on this conclusion? On the question of depression and not knowing that you're unhappy, you can see what Aydan is ultimately. He's a moral presumptuous person who believes that he knows better than the African that they are unhappy, even if they're telling him that they're happy. This is shocking for me. It's, uh, it's borderline. Uh, I, 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 I'm shocked. And as far as the point on worker co-ops, uh, these studies that show worker co-ops last longer, that's a smokescreen. It's, it's a bunch of facts that you can interpret that way. Here's another way to interpret it. The worker co-ops should have been closed. They were producing stuff that wasn't needed, but they were kept open by workers who are the parasitic entity of these unproductive systems. And a third point I wanted to uh, talk about is Aiden indirectly, uh, well, directly implicated through his statement that the state is putting us in indentured servitude. And so in this whole debate, he has admitted both that he is for theft and now in his concluding statement that he is for the state, which puts you in a state of indentured servitude, which means that he's both a thief and a slave owner. Okay, I can accept this difference. Gotcha.
if you we can give you a response, Aiden, if it's really short and pithy, and then we'll go into the Q and A. Uh, slave owning, good. Uh, theft, good. Uh, no, no real compl no complaints there. Gotcha. We're going to jump into the Q&A. I want to remind you folks, our guests are linked in the description. So if you want to hear more from them, you can. And that includes, folks, if you're listening via the podcast app. We are now, if you haven't checked us out yet on the podcast, basically pull out your favorite podcast app and look up Modern Day Debate as we are excited that we are now on there and active. We post all the time. And so if you're listening via podcast, you can find our guest links in that description box as well. So with, with that, we're going to jump into it. And so thanks for your first question. This one coming from, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, Bert Kreischer's fake laugh says, let's be honest, nobody can really step up to Papa JF. He's too smart. you got a fan out there. <laughs> Logical, plausible, probable says, does innovation require investment capital? So I think this is for you, socialism done left. They say, if so, in your utopia, who makes those investments who does the valuations? Does return on investment go to investors? Sure. So there's two answers. Uh, one is social wealth funds. I would point to a great paper on the topic by um, Matt Brunig, um, who talks about how social wealth funds can act as um, active managers of state investments. Um, historically, like um, the Permanent Fund of Alaska and the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Norway um, have both done like historically very well in managing the funds of those states and investing and building the wealth of those countries. Um, and then the other answer uh, is, <laughs> I'll, I'll meme, but it's a good book. I'll do a little meme. The People's Stock Market. Um, the if you want to read a long ass book on it from a market socialist, it is one. Um, I'm totally forgetting the title, but it is by um, Romer. R O E M E R. I believe it's. Um, I'm totally forgetting the name of it, but in short, Romer's idea is that people could invest in the stock market um, by having a sort of delinking of the stock market to the sort of accumulatory, like nonstop, uh, unequal wealth uh, of the current society. But it would still allow for some level of democratic investment and like choosing better investors to invest into more businesses. Um, complicated, but in short, social wealth funds and the people's stock market, uh, both very interesting concepts. You got it. Thank you very much. We'll jump into the next question. This one coming in from, appreciate your question. Yet again, logical, plausible, probable says, you said that you support, quote unquote, extra electoral checks on democracy. So basically a republic, right? Uh, Go ahead. Uh, extra electoral just means like not in the election. Uh, so like the republic, republic really means like representative democracy. So those are the people that you elect. We're talking here about systems outside of that. Like, um, for example, local community organizations. Um, there's a really good book on that topic um, called uh, Politics is for Power by Hirsch, um, which talks about how really, really strong local community organizing can be um, with some like very poignant examples. Uh, my suggestion is just directly fund stuff like that, um, provide public funding for like political parties so that they can organize stuff like that and get people engaged in political processes so that they can resist when the state is um, fighting down on them. It's part of another interesting term, if you just want to look it up, is the idea of pluralism, um, that there are institutions like the ACLU and other mass organizations that are there to stand up for people's rights when they're getting trod on. Gotcha. And he strikes yet again. He's after you, socialism done left. He says, do you think, do you actually think without billions of U.S. investment capital post-war plus defense that South Korea would have recovered? If so, you are out, uh, you're off your rocker. 
Oh, South Korea absolutely received an enormous amount of U.S. aid. I believe it's to the tune of like $1 billion per year. So it's not insignificant by any means. But their economy nowadays, their GDP per capita is 40000 per person. In Britain, it's 30000 They are like, by like modern living standards, close to a European or higher than most European countries. Um, to say that all of that is just due to a little bit of U.S. aid and a little bit of U.S. military defense, um, I think really does a disservice to the enormous economic growth that the South Korean development state model has seen. Um, so, yeah. You got it. Doubting Thomas, thanks for your, I don't know, says, I apologize. My comment was out of line. I didn't see it, but thank you. Mark Reed says, JF, why is socialism done left personally responsible for setting up solar energy to power his electrical grid? What does that have to do with anything? He's kind of touched on, uh, but if you want to add, you can. Yeah, I'm not saying that he's personally responsible for it. I'm saying because he was making a case that Obama had started a revolution in solar power and that it was so amazing and it was getting so low price. And what I wanted to prove is that even at this low price, which this guy is enthusiastic about, he's still not buying them. He's still not powering his stuff with solar panels. That's because they cost higher than coal. So he said a little bit of coal, a mix of coal and solar power. The fact is, this guy's electricity is not coming from the sun. And that's because solar panels are still too costly, despite Obama essentially putting them down your throat and saying, here, I'm going to give you a free phone with it. Even with the free Obama phone, it's still not worth it to buy solar. Can I have a 10-second response? Sure. Yeah. Uh, what, there's tons of solar places being built nearby. Uh, solar is, in fact, cheaper than coal. If you just want to Google Lazard solar cost um, study, Lazard, A-L-L-A-Z-A-R-D, like it's it's something like two times cheaper nowadays. Coal plants are literally shutting down as a result. All right. Well, we should see solar spread because the companies that are still yeah. using coal are absolutely ridiculous to do this. And logical, plausible, probable, can't help himself. He comes in again, he says... Socialism done left. France is trying to get off nuclear power because of environmental activist lunacy for quote-unquote renewables. Are you not aware of this? Yeah, that's dumb. I don't, like, socialism doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything everyone's dumb says, right? Like, I think that capitalists also shouldn't have to defend that you should, like, defund public schools or something. I don't think that just because a crazy idea exists, it's my duty to defend it. This is quite revealing because here we have the problem of dumb people in democratic systems. And what Aiden is arguing for is to let ourselves be guided by the dumb. Juicy, jumping into the next one. Lockbeard says, socialists watch, quote, I want your money, unquote, by Ray Griggs. Gotcha. And logical, plausible, probable says, have you personally tried to raise capital socialism done left it's government regulations that prevent seed round investments from banks are you not aware i'm sure there's some regulations on it i don't think that's the major complication there uh, i i'm just going to appeal to like there, there are literally current studies out on like why worker cooperatives succeed or fail and it's due to the fact that they can't raise capital because people aren't willing to lend not necessarily because they perform worse because again all the metrics seem to show that they perform better but that banks are unwilling to lend for a variety of cultural and like financial reasons um, that aren't actually justified gotcha and super k pill says jf do you agree with your opponent's claim that taking wealth from the most productive people and redistributing it 
to less productive people makes us all better off? Uh, it makes you better off in the same way that, say, feeding a murderer rapist with infinite amounts of sugar makes us better off. In other words, you cannot, you cannot say... I'm improving the world because here there's less crime since I've been giving away all this free money to everyone in this town. The thing is, you cannot let yourself be taken from your wealth to people who are threatening violence if you don't do it. That's extortion. It's kidnapping. It's blackmailing. Call it whatever you want. It's theft by threat. So what I say is we need to disconnect from our empathic brain and we need to start saying, to start being habituated to seeing human suffering and say, I'm not going to intervene. I'm going to let it happen. Gotcha. I have a feeling socialism done left. You, you weren't pleased with that summary of your case. If you want to say something, you can, I, I, but up to you. I mean, I do think ideally we should not like starve murderers, but beside that, um, I, I guess I'm just trying to, like, I, there's just so much evidence that when you improve people's human capital, they will provide a positive return to society. Like there's a reason why it is so enormously beneficial that everyone has a high school degree. It's going to reduce crime. It's going to improve their income by like two times. Getting them through college will do another two times. Uh, like it, it is beneficial not only to the person, but to society as a whole. The idea is that the idea that we're like taking wealth from the productive um, and just doing nothing with it, like burning it or like giving it to the poor and just like sugar is just bullshit. We're giving it to them to give them better lives, which allows them to improve themselves and improve society, which is why we see it do so. Um, there, I, there is one study which found fitting the solo growth model that I was talking about before, um, something like 74% of growth since 1800 can be attributed to human capital, either directly via education or indirectly via innovation. Um, it's really, really hard to understate how important this is. Gotcha. And thank you very much for your question. This one's an interesting one. This one comes in from Ozian, who says, I bought repossessed solar panels pretty cheaply. Interesting. And Good thank for you for Super K Pill, who says, Socialism guy, <laughs> his name's on the screen. <laughs> it says, Socialism guy, I don't agree with your view, but I like your style. So that's nice. <laughs> and then this next one coming in from Super K, or is Alex Cipriani. Let me know if you had a question you meant to attach to that, and I will keep an eye for it in the chat. Ozian says, though, capitalism and socialism are ideals. Neither have happened as idealized, and people just don't work either way. We don't all value the same things. Thoughts, it's true. I, I agree with the first part of the statement. Capitalism has never been realized in in its ideal form, and it's too bad, but it's probably impossible. Uh, there's always been, even in the greatest moments of liberty, uh, say a couple of hundreds of years ago uh, in America, there was violence, there was threat from the state, there was corruption, and there was ultimately skewing of the markets by these forces. So I don't think that anything we've seen implemented in the real world is per capitalism. The state has always been there in some form and it has influence. And if not the state, at least violence and military violence was there and playing the role of the state and controlling people. But I think we can uh, strive to get closest possible to the ideal and recognize that uh, it may be unattainable, but that on our way there, we're improving the world for ourselves. Got your thoughts from Socialism Done Left? 
I really like, there's this concept called um, provisional utopia. So communism, it's the utopia. It's like where we want to get to. Provisional is like what we do in between. It's experimenting with policy that moves us to the left and seeing if it works. And overwhelmingly, we see that we've tried, we've stumbled, and sometimes we've failed. Um, there, like the neoliberal era was in part a failure of most countries. Um, basically, in short, like the 1970s, high inflation caused a shift to the right on economics. Um, that was a failure of the social democracies of the world to handle inflation. We've gotten a lot better at it. We also see experiments. This is something I pointed to before in like trying to solve housing. Um, uh, when we point to like housing first in Finland, which took uh, the number of people who are homeless in Finland on a given day from around 10,000 to like 500, um, this approach is monumentally successful. Uh, the, we do these experiments to show us what the provisional utopia looks like, the steps we have to take to get there. And then we adopt those steps and we move in that direction. Um, so yes, I would say that, you know, true socialism, you know, or like, you know, the perfect socialism has never been tried. But when we take steps in that direction, um, we are either improving ourselves or our society or providing a, a lesson for people to follow in the future to get closer to it, which has been the long history of the rise of social welfare and this rise of the modern state um, in the West. Trying and failing, but getting there closely, slowly. Gotcha. And Laika An, thanks for your super chat. Sigma Any, thank you for your super chat. Says, what does a socialist society look for? Say, a small business owner single-handedly providing a unique professional service in a small town? Uh, I'm not sure I understood the question. Uh, let's see. Yeah, frankly, I'm. let's see. What does a socialist uh, ultimately is asking in your society how do you replace the plumber the electrician people who have started doing their craft and working on who they were through a, a kind of entrepreneur and ultimately a dream of making money and making in fact more money than other people around them well, i mean i think the answer that i would give um I, I kind of like the model a little bit that uh, David Schweikart uh, talks about, um, David Schweikart in, I think, After Capitalism, which is that I'm totally fine with like very small levels of private ownership on like a very small level. It's this idea that when you have large firms that are controlling enormous portions of the economy, like Amazon, um, you want those to be democratically owned and operated. So if some handyman wants to make a little money on the side, like above and beyond, like universal basic needs, universal basic um, income sort of stuff, that's fine with me. Um, you know, he'll just pay slightly more taxes, but he'll also get slightly more income. He can pursue his life as he, he sees fit. Um, I don't think that's a big deal. What we're interested here are the massive institutions that shape our economy. Um, so, yeah. Gotcha. And thank you very much for your question. This one coming in from Jangles Science Lad. I try to remember, JF, you and him had crossed swords in the past, right? You guys had a debate. I don't. What's his name again? Jangles Science Lad. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe I, I talked to thousands of people, so maybe, but I don't remember him. You got it. He asks, which system transports potatoes better? Is that an inside uh, joke? Well, capitalism transports potatoes better. That's actually true. Um, one of the things that I did a little bit of research on, I was debating this one weird Nazi who really, really liked to defend the British Empire. And so the British Empire built these things called famine railroads in India, which were specifically intended to shift food around the country and end famines. But instead, what happened is that all the grain <laughs> kept getting shipped over to Britain during the famines, and an additional like two to three million people died. So I will agree, capitalism was very good at transporting food there. <laughs> 
and uh, and I, I recognize the allusion to my private life of this super chat. And so I would like to clarify for the record, I did fuck this young woman of 19 years old. Okay, <laughs> I have no idea. But anyway, the next one coming in from Lockbeard says, Socialism done left needs to literally stop saying literally. Okay. Oh, don't worry. I get much meaner. Figuratively, never stop doing so. <laughs> like on says, JF, just because people in the developing can't afford to be depressed doesn't mean depression doesn't exist. Don't bother ra race baiting. I don't understand why. I don't know the context and what's, uh, but in terms of they well it's this uh, condescending attitude toward uh toward poor countries where i don't and this super chatter they're both saying oh they're depressed they just don't know they're depressed they've never considered that the great sickness of the world is their that their condescending diagnosis rather than the existence of poor people who didn't ask to be saved, who didn't ask for this communist overtake, and who are happy in their life because they're connected to the struggle of existence. In a way, they're more connected to life than Aiden himself and this super chatter. Gotcha. And this, I, go ahead. Go ahead. That's fine. This one coming in from, appreciate it, logical, plausible, probable. He never gives up. He says, have you ever done anything no. entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial, or do you just read some studies? If you think regulations don't block seed investors, you're wrong. Uh, so I don't think that I've done anything entrepreneurial enough that would need like seed investment on that level. Uh, so no, uh, I don't think that's a very strong argument though, because in general, uh, it's not, there's not a lot of strong evidence that this is I, to my mind, there's not a lot of strong evidence that this kind of regulation in particular is the thing that really hurts um, firms actually getting started. It's possible that there is. If you want to like DM me stuff, I'm free, feel free to read it on Discord, but I don't really trust anecdotal experiences in general, right? If you were to tell me like, hey, I was um, I was in seed stage investment and the government really helped me out, okay, and it got me started, that wouldn't be strong evidence for socialism. That would be a shitty anecdote. I don't trust it either way. This is why we look to empirical evidence because it's part of having a well-functioning epistemology. Gotcha. And thank you very much for your question. Coming in from Ozzy and says, how about this? Can you both agree that we should end government protection of corporations? No. What? If you to have a well-functioning market, this is something that like virtually everything in neoclassical economics would agree. Um, you need like protection of private property rights. Um, like even if you were a capitalist, the answer would be no. Yeah, I agree with this. Gotcha. Now, instead, the government should protect the corporations by bringing them into the watchful hands of the workers. You no, just protect them by ensuring that they're not being burned down by your side of the political spectrum, Aiden. You got it. And this one coming in from logical, plausible, probable. He says electricians, plumbers, and iron workers, etc., are making way more money than average and can get paid to learn 
Oh, sure. So there is definitely a segment in which adult education can be um, partially solved by the market, right? Like this is kind of what he's getting to. Some employers will pay you to do occupational learning um, in part, especially when they can like know that you're going to stay on a contract for a while. But this is not the general case. Um, it is very hard, for example, let's say that like an engineering firm was like, hey, we need like 10 more engineers. Well, first off, they need to say something like, hey, we need 10 more engineers 10 years from now because we're going to pay for their middle school and their high school and their college. Um, this idea that like... Uh, this idea that markets can solve these, even though they have never done so, um, and like virtually all of the evidence seems to show that like well-functioning public schools function better than private schools, um, I think it's just absurd. There's a reason why governments are really good at solving this. It's because they don't have the incentive problems, they have long time frames, and they've got deep pockets to actually improve people's ability to be productive and like happy and well-functioning members of society, which is good for them and for the rest of us. So thumbs up. You got it. And just checking for any last questions, looking for serious questions, folks. And let's see, Lockbeard, thanks for your question. This one is, have these guys read, quote unquote, Atlas Shrugged? I couldn't uh, get through more than two lines. I hate fiction. What's that? Um, I think it's a line from like Sam Harris or something. The worst thing the Bolsheviks did was give Ayn Rand an education. <laughs> That's my take. Terrible writer. Juicy. And so I want to say thank you, everybody. I think that uh, we just to respect the time of our guests. want to say thank you to them. They are linked in the description, folks. And we really do appreciate you hanging out with us. No matter what walk of life you are from, we are a neutral platform hosting debates on all the juicy, controversial topics. And one last question from logical plausible probable says okay says massive shortage on trade workers socialism done left you said they can do some side work on your fantasy land so I don't have the types of inequality that we're interested in ending are not like, oh, I'm making $100,000 a year. I'm making $200,000 a year. The, the top 1% of America gets like 25% of the income. They own like 40% of the wealth. I'm not interested meaningfully in like trying to stop incomes of like $100,000. If, if we want to think about this as like bounding income, I want to bring up the poor. I want to bound poverty on the bottom end by ensuring that everyone has certain basic needs met because it benefits them and it benefits everyone in society to do so. Simultaneously, I want to bound the top by limiting how much people can accumulate wealth because there's little evidence that it benefits society as a whole. It benefits them, but does not benefit society as a whole. And so in short, I'm not interested in stopping the handyman from getting his $100,000 salary. I'm interested in stopping someone from, particularly it's like the top 3% or so, getting enormous benefits from the capital ownership that they have um, and and also somewhat a little bit limiting extremely high incomes which are mostly tied to financial sector incomes and um, uh, managerial incomes at the very very high end but mostly it's capital income that we're interested in limiting gotcha and like on also sent in the last one said i'm african a lot of people in africa are depressed interesting true JF, it sounds like you would say that the meta-analyses or the studies that are out there, though, you would say. So it's fascinating. I'm like, no, I mean, it's a, cons it's a consistent finding that uh, the levels of happiness reported in poor countries is systematically higher uh, than in uh, advanced countries. Uh, so that's uh, undoubtable, even if this guy knows someone who's depressed. Gotcha. Really, I've never read any of that before. It's interesting stuff. And so I want to just say, though, folks, 
We appreciate our guests. So we want to encourage you to attack the arguments, not the people. And also, JF, that's right. I know that you have uh, – I, I have not put it in the uh, description yet, but I will throw your Amazon link to your book that I had just seen you lift earlier. That's right. And so want to let you know that will be added to the dis- or the uh, description post below as well. And so thank you guys, though. It's been a true pleasure to have you both, JF and Socialism Done Left. Thank you so much for having us. And by the revolutionary phenotype, or your genetic descendants will be abolished from the earth. Thank you. Thanks again for. Ha- Sorry. No, go ahead. Thanks again for having me on. Um, if there's one book I'd recommend, it's and you can find it for free if you. Um, I don't know if you DM me, I can show you how to find it for free. Uh, called "Politics Is for Power" by Hirsch. Um, it really, really uh, talks about how important it is to do local political activism and how you can get involved and make a meaningful impact on democracy. "Politics Is for Power" by Hirsch. Gotcha. And then one last question snuck in by T. Torchon. For you, socialism done left. They say if Heritage Foundation peeps controlled academia and had a deluge of uber peer-reviewed meta analyses upon meta-analyses saying that socialism is trash, would you buy it? Presumably not, because I would think the methodology is wrong. I, the, the strength of a, me- of a meta-study is not the number of studies. It's the strength of the methodology of those sub-studies. And so generally, when we're talking to talk about stuff like, hey, does this welfare policy have a good or bad impact? We're talking about like randomized control trials or differences and differences. And if they're just like spewing out studies that are against those findings, presumably, since these findings are using good methodology, they'd be using shit methodology, and I wouldn't trust them. Gotcha. So only gently hold your feet to the fire. Because I, I think, I mean, I think that they're they're not trying to say like that quantity over quality. I, I didn't mean to imply that about their question. So I think that they're ah. they're trying to argue like, assuming they're not garbage method methodology. I mean, oh sure. So I would try to follow. Um... I, I try to follow like the evidence where it leads. And so like if scientific consensus changes, then I would change my view as well. Um, I think that in fact, the movement in economics is in the direction that I would support. Um, back in 1980, only like, I think 20% of economists supported minimum wage. Nowadays, it's like 70% support a minimum wage. Um, inequality studies in economics have like quadrupled or octupled in the last 10 years. Um, the direction that I'm moving in and the direction I want to see society go is exactly the same direction that academia is moving in. So happy to see it. Gotcha. We will. Uh, I will be back with a post-credit scene, letting you know about upcoming debates, folks. As we are really excited about a lot of juicy ones coming up. And then uh, the banterlope says, the last minute says, Papa JF is undefeated on the internets. Very. I'm the second incarnation of the committee of Tunkasa. One hundred fifty-nine versus zero juicy and we will so we will be back folks uh with a post-credit scene i'll be back in just a moment to let you know about debates such as this one next week and so thanks everybody and be right back in just a moment and thanks especially to our guests it's been a true pleasure thanks again have a great evening save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app get 16 ounce packs of flavorful angus 90 percent lean ground sirloin for 4.99 each with a digital coupon then buy two get two free on 12 packs of delicious coca-cola pepsi or 7-up all with your card shop these deals at your local kroger today or tap the screen now to download the kroger app to save big today kroger fresh for everyone prices and product availability subject to change restrictions apply see site for details